This is a HeadGum Podcast. Fine Dining, the search for the most mediocre restaurant in America, is a podcast where comedian Michael Ornelas is traveling the country, eating at all chain restaurants in search of the perfectly average 5.0 out of 10 dining experience. The objective middle threshold of where bad becomes good. Friend of the Doughboys, Marissa Pinson and John Glover were the most recent guests as they reviewed Costco's Food Court. It's a two-part episode that covers everything from discontinued menu items to how many Costco hot dogs they could fit in their mouths. Damn, I wish I was on that episode. I'd crush that. Head over to linktree.com slash fine dining podcast, F-I-N-E-D-I-N-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, and click B's giveaway to enter a giveaway for an all expenses paid trip to your local Applebee's, the current front runner for the most mediocre restaurant in America at 5.02 out of 10 for you and up to three of your friends. And you could watch or listen to fine dining on your platform of choice while you're there. Enter by May 1st and the winner will be announced on the May 8th episode. Disclaimer, $50 will be provided for transportation along with a $200 Applebee gift card. I love doing those fast read disclaimer things. Go give fine dining a listen. The search for the most mediocre restaurant in America. What's up, guys? It's me, Gabrus. And uh, I just, before you get to my episode, by the way, thanks for listening. I just want to let you know that I'm going to be doing some live dates in the new year. So get yourself some tickets. Um, uh, the weekend of the 16th, 17th, 18th, I'll be doing a little Northeast. I'll be in Littlefield, Brooklyn on January 16th. I'll be at Great Scott in Boston on January 17th. And I'll be at the Ruba Club in Philadelphia on January 18th. Um, and then in February, I'll be doing a little Texas tour. Don't worry. It's after the Super Bowl, Texas, so you can come out on the weekend. It's uh, February 6th. I'll be at the White Oak Music Hall in Houston. On February 7th, I'll be at the North Door in Austin. And on February 8th, I'll be at the Son of Herman Hall in Dallas. Do yourself a favor. Get all your tickets at headgum.com slash live. You'll see links to all the tickets for my shows. Uh, so that's January 16th, 17th, 18th in Brooklyn, Boston, Philly, and uh, February 6th through 8th in Texas, Houston, Austin, and Dallas. Thanks so much. Hope to see you out there. See you soon, shitheads. What's up, shitheads? Welcome back to another episode of High and Mighty. It's me, your boy, the number one fuckboy. The number one fuckboy. This gets harder to do in front of strangers. The number one <laughs> fuckboy, Johnny G. Joining me as always in the High and Mighty studios, my nearly silent co-host, Arthur Gabris. Arthur, give him a shout out. That's a nylabone you hear being dominated, absolutely grapefruited by young Arthur. Also joining me in the Hiding Mighty Studios, a lunch friend Aww. and also someone who I uh, watched beta tapes of at my desk as a PA uh, at VH1. Guys, author, writer, Joel Stein. What number fuckboy am I? Uh, well, we have slots numbers 2 through 12 are open and available. I'd be a fool not to take two. <laughs> yeah, you gotta take Cheater's two. Cheater's <laughs> number. Hell yeah, respect. My, <laughs> that's my captain. Um, Joel, thank How you so much. How did you become number one? Just real quick. That's really funny. I, at this point, I don't even know the origin story. Maybe like, this is like episode 250 sure. something. In episode like 10 or so, I referred to myself as a fuckboy. Oh, so you like, gave yourself the title. Yeah, it just sort of like no came up as a No one's given you that bit. title? <laughs> Maybe someone's called me a number one fuckboy since. But, but a few episodes after I started doing that, someone's like, do you know what that even means? <laughs> I was do like, you? I, 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 it comes from... Uh, 
in jail. The oh person my. who's sort of like oh abused and bot and bottoms for they call him a oh. fuck boy. Well, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna change to number twelve. <laughs> yeah, you want to back down? To number yeah, 12? I didn't. Now that I know what it means, but I think it's now taking on colloquialism oh. uh, of like uh, it means it's sort of like douchebag guy guy you don't want to deal with. Like uh, women refer to like okay. guys as like oh this guy's a fuck boy. You don't don't get involved with Joel. He's a fuck boy. He'll play games with you and blah. blah oh blah. okay. Yes. All right, but yeah. that as a thirty-eight-year-old white married man to call myself the number one fuckboy, I don't right. even know what I mean. Anymore. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm impressed. Number one, anything is really hard to get nowadays. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's arguably that it's uh, elite of me to be number one. Look oh, at that yeah. segue. Yeah, well done, <laughs> uh, Joel. We want to talk about elitism today because. You wrote a book called In Defense of Elitism, and remind me what the colon is after, because I couldn't even... The colon, the subtitle is... <laughs> yeah, the um, colon. <laughs> remind you, me what your colon is. You are is. not going to be an elitist. Uh, <laughs> remember, the elite. it's uh, In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You, and You're Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and we were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording about what inspired you to write about elitism. It's it was something that was bothering me for a really long time. Probably first came to mind when Sarah Palin was running for vice president, and yes. she really took on the elites. But you know, in my lifetime, certainly when Howard Howard Dean was attacked as being you know a latte drinking, Volvo driving <laughs> member of the elite, <laughs> right? And then um, I remember Matt Lauer, who I was never crazy about was interviewing Joe Biden, who's right then vice side president. Of history. <laughs> I know, I know. I feel good about that. He'd done a couple weird things in front of me that I didn't love. And he um, was interviewing Joe Biden about, I think Elena Kagan was being nominated for the Supreme Court. And he was like, you know, it seems elitist that all of these, our justices, our Supreme Court justices, are all going to be from Harvard, Yale, or Columbia. And I, I just remember thinking, and he's like, don't you think that, you know, that's a little elitist? And I was like, we don't want our Supreme Court justices to like have gone to the best law schools. Like, what if we... The word supreme is in their job title. It's, it's like okay all, if they're elite. <laughs> all they're doing is like looking at obscure, like, you know, ways to look at the Constitution and past court cases. This isn't, you know, I don't think we need to democratize this part of our society. Right. There's something really weird about the backlash to elitism where it's like you know i feel like the first time i really saw all this like uh uh you know drive towards the middle towards like faux blue collar life was yeah. like with bush with the whole like that's the kind of guy i want to have a beer with like oh that, i know that expression for the longest so time. i went back and looked at presidents and analyzed them as far as who you'd want to have a beer with and the president you would least want to have a beer with is is abraham lincoln Right. Abraham Lincoln was he a teetotaler first? He of all? was a teetotaler who thought that he said that drinking made him feel flabby and um, I forgot the other word, but there were the words that if your friend said them, you would never take them out anywhere. Yeah, again. yeah, it was like, oh, I can't have beer; it makes me flabby. I'd be yeah. like, you know what? Oh. You just lost your weekly invite. Yeah. Oh, your year any invite. and he's like six foot six. He's gonna want to box you or wrestle you or oh. some shit, and so he's or gonna lecture be like, you. Yeah, and the president is most fun to have a beer with by far. James Buchanan. Ooh, and why is that? I know, and here's... Basically, you, basically thrown out of school for drinking. Got a, every week at the White House, got a uh, barrel of whiskey that he picked up himself and delivered. <laughs> complained that the bottles of champagne weren't big enough that were being delivered to the White House. And, of course, the worst president in the history of America <laughs> yeah. who brought us to a civil war. 
Fair enough. Yeah. Well, you know, he's got he, he, people are running against Buchanan for the title of the worst president. They're uh, trying. I think. Yeah. The, I think if they can avoid a civil war, they'll still <laughs> they'll still have the the number one fuckboy title. <laughs> That's what like the, I think I'm pro elitism, like the way we're talking about it. Wait, like, right. Let's just be clear. I, I have to be clear in the book because this is it's a word that's being thrown around so much. I'm talking about the intellectual elite. I'm not talking about what I then the call in the book the boat elite. Okay, because that's that's yes. so funny you say this. I have not I have not read your book. Obviously, yeah, it's a lot of words. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, I mean, I got fucking caught up it's, with the subtitle. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got really big margins though. Oh, all right, okay. perfect. Um, I uh, it, it reads like a eye test. Well, it's it like does. just big but letters honestly, in the middle of each. So I purposely tried to write a really short book because I feel like people don't want to read long books, and my topic doesn't really deserve. You know, it's yeah. an essay. I can make the argument pretty quickly. So I I wrote it purposely. I cut it and cut it and cut it down to like 200 pages. And I uh, got it back from the publisher, like a galley, and it was 300 something pages. And I was like, I'm, I know I wrote this much shorter yeah, than my first book. I actively pursued cutting it. Yeah. I know the word count. I know it's it's 70,000 words compared to my last book, which was like 120,000. And yet it's the same page count. So I started looking and they had literally made the margins bigger. They made the font bigger. They made the spaces between the lines bigger. They put in blank pages. To make it 300 pages? College essay style. Because oh, they think... feel like if they want to charge full price, it has to be a certain page count. Oh, that makes sense. It does. Uh, but I, I, it makes sense from their POV, not like But I could believe like adults in the publishing industry still use our college essay tricks. I know. It's like uh, select all, courier new, yeah. 13 point font, Ex- and I have a 12 page paper. Oh, <laughs> it's horrible. I'm sorry. You're saying you haven't re- well, read Well, I was it saying yet. it's so funny. I haven't read it, but I was literally going to say the same thing. I am pro people being very good at their jobs and having being trained in it and having but the negative side effect of this elitism it, like yes i'm i want my lawyer my supreme court justices to be highly educated but if they're all from the same school then they're all from the same experience you know what i mean and a lot of these school as we learn more and more about the ivy leagues and shit and you know how you can get in just being a legacy and yep. money and all and once inside the weird sort right. of uh, social structure within these Ivy League schools. That's the stuff that stresses me out. But that, I think, is more what we're talking about with the boat elite. Well, no. I mean, that's, a, I think, a really fair point, which is the meritocracy is not It's not great. a full-blown meritocracy. No, yeah, it's yeah. not It's not working as it should. It's, In my opinion, it's working way better than it used to, even working better than when I was a kid. If you, right. if you look at like getting into an Ivy League school, when I was growing up, there was a much smaller group of people applying. It's much harder to get in now. There's a much more diverse student body yeah. in every way, yeah. um, including uh, economically and where they come from. It's not nearly where it should be, and that needs to be improved. But I would rather but do that. But it's way better than it was. But I think it's more important. Do that and fix that. Don't throw away the whole system. And just like... Right, don't abolish Ivy Like Bernie Sanders literally has talked about the fact that he thinks the Board of Governors for the Fed should have a farmer on it. And all I can think about is like, then there'd be like two reasons we wouldn't eat right? because there'd be a farmer making horrifying decisions and one fewer person making us food. So yeah, the, the, it's to get more, it's to get more people into the system. And there's a whole section on that. I go to 826 uh, LA. Have you ever gone over there? No. What's that? So that's the Eggers, Dave Eggers started this thing to, oh, yeah. to help kids, uh, poorer kids in cities, uh, New York, San Francisco, LA, a couple other cities. Uh, it's a writing tutor, writing tutors. That's like there's the superhero store in Brooklyn, right? Which yeah, is yeah. Him. So yeah. here it's a time machine store. 
Ah. And in uh, San Francisco, it's a pirate store. So he, so it's got like a, it's like a fun, cute uh, storefront, and then in the back, yeah, is because kids when he learn. first yeah. bought eight two six LA, the rule was it had to have the zoning law was there had to be a store in it. So, he, uh. but he wanted to have a tutoring center, so he built a pirate store. He's like, "What do kids like?" And he just sold like full on real pirate stuff. <laughs> That's like awesome. Patches and uh, hooks, <laughs> and uh, and then you know you have to walk through this door and the, the secret door in the back to get to the tutoring center, which is so fun for kids, right? But and they do this thing where they help kids write their college essays, which I try to do every year. Oh, cool! And I think that's such a great way to like change the system by helping kids get into these institutions who otherwise. Wouldn't right, know how to navigate the system to get in. Yeah, it's so weird. It, it's so funny. Like my experience going to college, or like that planning of going to college, was completely in my mom's hands. And oh, is, is that right? How did she know? My parents didn't know. My, my they didn't know. Oh. My mom just like, and this goes back to our previous conversation. She's just from Long Island, which means this this woman that I work with, her son goes to Marist College in Poughkeepsie, right. and loves it, home of Bill O'Reilly. Bill, Bill O'Reilly, yeah. uh, and I, I think it goes in order of famous alumni. It goes Bill O'Reilly, uh, Rick Smiths, John Gabris, maybe wow. <laughs> might be the third. The, the, the guy who was publisher for a while of Time Magazine had gone to Marist. Oh, okay. So he, that's all right, why so bumps me down to fourth. Yeah. He's not a name check guy. But. No, Ed Ed McCarrick, <laughs> man, he could sell. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he looked like a sales guy. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. Um, like for me, and I just like ended up going to Maris because my mom's friend's kid went there. And right. I'm 16, and all I want to do is drink on the weekends and play video games. I don't want to think about school. Fine, yes. To me, going to school felt like going to college was the way my mom talked about going to church. It's like, yeah, whatever, whenever. Whatever. You make me go on Sunday after karate, right. fine. Yeah, whatever. But and, isn't it what's interesting and unfair about the meritocracy, and I'm glad you went to Marist, and uh, you're so smart and so likable, but if you had grown up with in a different part of the country with different parents, you weren't motivated enough to make all that happen. No, like, it would have never happened for you. Yeah, no, I would have gone. It's just to, where you were. I would have gone to like in, you know, if it was completely up to me, I would have gone to like whatever school was still accepting applications in January. Or not of gone my to senior, school. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like, were you motivated? Did you feel like. I wanted to go to college because I wanted like that cool college, like okay. movie experience. Like, the, right, 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 but right. I didn't know. I didn't have like preferences. I, if I could do it all again, like if I could do it all again, I would like leave New York. You right. know what I mean? I just like yep. went. My in hindsight, my mom picked a school that also happened to be less than a three hour drive away. Which yeah, like, my parents tried to do that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> which in hindsight, I was like, oh, I see. And and then I'm like, remind me to never do that to my kid. To and like, then you moved out here anyway. She yeah. fa- she failed. <laughs> yeah, she totally failed. Yeah. Well, that was a big. I moved out. I moved to Brooklyn, which was like uh, a forty-five minute drive from where I grew up, like with no money, like right after college. Right. And my mom's like, "Just live at home," and I'm like, "I can't now." Yeah. So, and how do you feel about that decision? I feel good. I it put me in a real financially and a financial bind for like the first five years of my life slash right. career. I mean, that would be two thousand and four, two thousand and five, and in two thousand and. 17 i'm finally out of credit card and like student loan debt and stuff so maybe so in a way you wish you maybe had lived at home <laughs> yeah may, maybe or like I, I wish i had the like mental capacity to live at home you know what i mean like there's just I, if i wish i could handle living at home because then i could have probably but also at the same time like i need i think i needed that character building of being like super poor actor in new york city like and do you think having to pay your rent and do that kind of hustle helped you at all? I think it it, cer- it certainly helped me. It certainly makes me feel like 
understanding more of like people's like you know like I feel like now as an adult man who can afford to rent an apartment in right. West Hollywood like um I feel like I'm glad I went through that because I have like a newfound respect for anyone who's like out there trying to do it and stuff like that. But at the same time, there's part of me that was like, like if I, I could have went to school in fucking I every time the time it always comes up is anytime I drive past. Uh, is it Pepperdine, the school that's oh, in Malibu? It looks gorgeous. Right. It? Every time I drive past, it, I'm like, I could have went to I couldn't have gone to that college because it was it Christian. I don't know, but Marist was Catholic anyway, that's and, right, and that's I'm right. like an atheist, and I was e- even an atheist when I was 17. Do you know what they filmed at Pepperdine? No. Uh, Battle of the Network Stars. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so amazing. That's so funny to yeah. film. Yeah. Your college is just close enough to Hollywood that you have it's to- amazing, yeah. isn't it? And gorgeous enough where like Farrah Fawcett would want to go through an obstacle course there. <laughs> I like literally remember the moment being like 24 and there was college football on. I was like in the city watching college football on a Saturday and the University of Hawaii was playing. And you're like, wait, why didn't I know about that? <laughs> exactly. And that's my exact response was like, I could have went to University of Hawaii. <laughs> Can you imagine that pitch to your parents though in Long Island? Like that goes nowhere. That, yeah. My parents like they, my mom hadn't even, by the time I was going to college, my mom hadn't been on a plane. You know what I mean? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. She went, like, she uh, got afraid of, she flew to her college for, like, six months before she dropped out when she was in, uh, when she was, like, 18, and then never flew again until I was, like, 24. But out, 25. out of fear, not money. Out of fear. I mean, it was partially money, but it was definitely mostly fear. Like, we wow. drove to Florida every winter for, like, eight years oh. from Long Island. How did she get over that? She took a fear of flying class. That, do you know that's the pilot of the Bob Newhart show? No. Yeah. He takes uh, a, he's a therapist, he's a psychologist, and he takes a group of people from Chicago to New York on their first flight to get them as the end of their class training. Oh, yeah, that's getting so over. But yeah. it, and it's, he finds out his wife is afraid of flying. Which apparently he did not know till then, oh. and uh, and she has to get on the plane with him, and then hilarity ensues. Oh, that's so! I I'm, I'm going to look that up. I yep. love Bob Newhart show. Uh, the um, fear of flying class, which is super interesting, took place at JFK in a plane. Well, you didn't go with her. No, I didn't go oh. with her, but she told me about this. And so it takes place in a plane that doesn't take off. Exactly. Just so you have to go through security. Great. You have to do all the stuff that you would do if you were flying. So you're like emotionally preparing right. for it. So, and then you sit in a plane and learn about like how, and I, I don't even know what the curriculum of a fear of flying class is, but I, the graduation is, I think you, you fly from JFK to LaGuardia. Like no. more or less, you just Re- get up, take off, and pretty much turn around and land. And it's just like you get the feel for everything on the plane. Or it's like New York to Logan and back, you know, like there's different versions of it. It's but interesting it's all to like- trace like how cognitive behavioral therapy like became the mode of therapy. Because when she's doing that, most therapists are just Freudians who are talking to you about your childhood. Right. Except when you have an actual problem. Right. <laughs> in which it suddenly becomes very practical and cognitive behavioral. I I am learning. I just started doing uh, therapy like a year ago and I'm learning about this. And yeah. I can't believe the attitude I and everyone I grew up with and my entire family had towards therapy. Well, it's really changed, though. Like, therapy yeah. used to be a lot of talking about your parents. Right. And now they kind of don't care. Yeah, now they're like, let's just do some actionable items for yes. you. Like, like, right? Yeah. And that's 
when I pitch going to therapy to all my non-therapy friends, I'm like, it's just someone that you can, since you're paying them, you can feel okay unloading on them. Yeah, but <laughs> then they give like, you like a little at play. a minimal at a yeah. minimal level. It's that at, you, you can get way more out of it. You yeah, know? but like, but even Tony Soprano is still going to like someone who wants to talk about his mom, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because yeah. that was like the stereotype of therapy, right? And by like, the way, you're it doesn't help Tony at all. No, like Tony <laughs> needs to see a CBT therapist who would be like, first of all. Every night you're gonna go one foot further from your gun. I also recommend not searching CBT because that is also a porn search term that means cock and ball torture, and I oh. found that out the hard way. <laughs> wow! And does that have any? Uh, are there any similarities? Does cock and ball? <laughs> yeah, I, don't you, know. I bet you work your way up. If you're in a yeah, similar way, if you're if you're afraid or uh, having a hard time dealing with clothespins on your genitals, I right. think it'll eventually get you over. Interesting. It. They have to include. The balls. But it's not, <laughs> it's not just cock torture. I wonder torture. if there's two different schools. There's like, I'm more of a cock torture guy. I'm more of a ball torture oh, guy. So, so much like uh, any subgroup. They have like a feud between yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. They're like, ew, don't put any, don't you dare put <laughs> electroshocks on my balls. Shaft only. <laughs> that, those people are so weird. <laughs> yeah, they're like, all right, freaks. Good luck fucking putting pins in your balls. I'm over here hammering a nail through my dick. <laughs> Really Which side, if you had to pick a side in this war? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I would. F- I'm pretty clear on mine. Yeah? Where would you go? Balls? You have a kid already. Oh, I wasn't even thinking practically. I just a pure gut. Yeah. Even though my book is about not operating from the gut and <laughs> operating from data and being rational and, and the, the gut being the worst way to oh, react, yeah. I, still, I still, on this, I'm going to have a gut reaction. And I think... Even though ball torture seems much worse, it seems more normal. Same, same. You agree? I'm with you. Yeah, I don't. It's hard to uh, quantify normalcy here uh, for me, but I think I'd rather my balls. Yeah. Having your penis attacked seems. Uh, it seems high risk. Oh, Extra really high risk. upsetting. Yeah. In, in a different kind of way. Yeah, I definitely have more surface area balls like you know what i mean like <laughs> you know, there's more for them to to, there's more it's more of a playground for my torturer and the older you get the more that's going to be true <laughs> exactly it's yeah. only getting bigger <laughs> um i don't cut to, i don't cover this in my book at all which i think looking back was a mistake <laughs> yeah well i don't know what how elite that world is but uh i'm sure there's, there's i'm sure there's top notch people that's the funny thing about yeah. life is like there's constantly there was like a stupid Modern Family episode where the premise was uh, Al Bundy. Ed O'Neill was excited that he was like this high status at this hotel, mm-hmm. and he gets on the That's and he's perfect. like and he's like black label or whatever. He hits the uh, hits penthouse. And there's a guy higher. gets on, yeah, and hits platinum yeah. and goes PH two. And he's yeah. like, "What the fuck?" Just finding out about that. My whole life, I love you. Just you shift into a new world, and when you're like, "Wow, this is a step up for me," and then you just see that there's always another higher step. So there's this quote again to in the book from C.S. Lewis, who gives this speech to King's College, and he warns all the kids about pursuing the inner ring, and he says, "There's those of you who are always going to be trying to get into a deeper, you know, a more and more inner ring." And it's going to destroy your life, and you're going to compromise your integrity. And and no one who has made these sacrifices comes out a better person. Oh. And I had lived my whole life trying to get into what I called the loop, because I remember as a kid just feeling very unclear, probably to this day, of how big the world is, and how. And I remember like there would just be little clues, like you'd be watching like the Carson show, 
and you'd find out that like the equivalent of Keith Richards and Mr. Rogers had met or knew each other. And you're right. like, how does that happen? How, like, how does this world work? Like, it's just all very confusing. I remember wanting to like have my parents take me to Broadway shows or like Little Italy restaurants or just like to see or ordering lobs. I ordered snails once in front of my parents. Um, and because it said escargot, and I thought right. that was a cool word. Yes. I wanted to be French. And they right. were like, you don't want that. I'm like, I want escargot. They're like, you. Then they used the best logical argument, which was it's snails. <laughs> and you're like, wait, I'm and, pump and, the brakes here. And I was, <laughs> and I still was like, no, I'm getting it. And I had to suffer through those snails. <laughs> but then I interned at Newsweek when I was in college, and I remember people giving me, like, editors giving me spare invitations to like the, literally the Democratic National Convention or like a restaurant opening or Roddy McDowell's book party at the Limelight. Where there oh, were like cool. drag queens. I went to Limelight after my prom. You did? <laughs> yeah. You didn't go to like the comedy cellar like most kids? <laughs> no. We went, we went, took a fucking get, uh, beat How'd up you ass get into limo. Limelight? Uh, it was like back in the day, like it was like 18 to s- swim, 21 to go under, one of those type situations. I don't know what that meant. Is that, that like cock and ball torture? <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, that was just like a weird thing bars used to do to get. Uh, let eighteen-year-olds in, but they couldn't order drinks. Oh, so swimming was yeah, go like eighteen, like it's like it's eighteen to swim, twenty-one to go under. Meaning like, oh, come on oh. into the pool, but if you want to fuck around, really. Got, but really, once you were inside, a twenty-one-year-old can buy you whatever you know. Like sure, yeah. So we were like, that was our plan. We didn't even stay that long. It was like this is like we dr- we mostly drove the ent- the entire way, like in traffic on our Friday night prom all Just the way to more go- to say you went to the limelight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because when you walked in, it clearly wasn't for you right no. like you're a bunch of like mooks from long island yeah we, and there's not, it's like a gay madonna e scene in there yeah we for we just knew it was like a club like because yes. when i when i was in high school the coolest things in the city that we knew whether we anyone we knew went to them or not like we would just hear about the tunnel yep the sound factory or the factory and limelight those were like the three big so clubs. you're you're picturing let me guess if i could you're yeah. in long island you're like we're gonna go to this club there's going to be super hot chicks dressed provocatively. It's going to be like a movie. There's going to be like yeah. chicks in cages with get big white beers. boots. Yeah, exactly. We're Oh, yeah. Can't wait to go in there. I'm 17. I have $40 cash right. on me. I can't wait to go to a New York City club and, and have a couple of drinks. I'm going to get a couple of beers. <laughs> a vodka crayon. I don't even know what cocktails are at that no. point. <laughs> and then I'm going to dance or like hook up. Maybe yes. just hook up with these moments. And then you walk in and it's a freak show of like music you're not familiar with it was like everything about it it was very eye-opening for me and and maybe even helped set a precedent for how i would be about social gathering like it was like so difficult to get in like the the limo had to circle the block a bunch of times we finally were able to pull over we got out there was a long line we got to the front of the line it was twenty dollars we were too many guys not enough girls like everything was like a pain in the ass and then we get inside and it was so like it was just like overwhelming, but not interesting at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I was just like, oh, all that effort for like arguably almost nothing. You it know, wasn't I, your people. It wasn't my people. Yeah. And then also I learned at that moment, I was like, I fucking never. I mean, I would eventually go to college and wait in line and pay covers to go to bars because that's just like, you know, they uh, supply outweighs, uh, supply right. limits uh, makes demand stronger or whatever. Uh, but 
I will I will never wait in line for shit now. <laughs> like I just uh, don't have even it in food? Me. Food, uh, yes. Food I would wait like, you know, like food truck or like, like a hot if I chicken. got like Howlin' Rays or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll wait in line for for something like that. But I have no desire to be inside somewhere that's yes. like like even when I go to Comic Con as talent and it's like the EW party's here and it's like hopefully someone at the door will be able to let you, yes. you know. And then once it's one layer of that, I'm like, I I don't have it in me. I'd rather just eat an edible and uh, rent a movie in my hotel. In yeah. like the late 90s, there was a club in Chelsea. I forget, I'm blanking on the name of it, but they let me be the doorman for a night for a column. <laughs> and That's so cool. I remember walking, I'm like, I'm going to let the nerds in. Like this is the night when I let my people <laughs> in. And I, the miscalculation, of course, was that my people weren't coming. They're not getting in line. And the other gym. miscalculation was, is that I, despite what I'd like to be like, the truth is I am, I'm weak around salespeople. So these Mookie guys would come in and like talk me up or these hot women would come by and chat me up. And they, and they knew ex- like everyone knows. Yeah. I cave. Those doormen are strong. Like they are <laughs> tough. They're put up with a lot of crap. Um, yeah. Like um, the idea of hookups must be floated in front of bouncers, doormen so frequently. It wasn't, I don't know. When like, I, hey, no, I own a steakhouse. You come in, I'll get you a free. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I remember hey, literally I... Bobby Flay walked up, to, who I'd met, who I knew, <laughs> so I let him in. But he hey, was, Joel, hey, we yeah. want to go. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Joel, let me in the club. I'm about to go down to Mississippi and outcook this old grandma with her uh, barbecue rib recipe and humiliate he's, her. He's from Long Island, right? <laughs> yeah. If he's, he's not, yeah, I, he, he has to be. Yeah. He's spiritually from there. <laughs> but Bobby is a real, like, Tri-state area, kind of. So I remember. I picture him right now in like that smooth leather jacket. <laughs> um, what made you want to defend? I mean, we're talking about there's like yeah. this backlash to elitism. Yeah, and it also it almost feels like like it's wrong to be smart now. Not even just educated. Yeah. Well, it's wrong no, to be so, like. So inf- I trace the history of that in the book, which there's this uh, really great Pulitzer Prize winning, super boring book. Uh, that Richard Hofstadter wrote called Anti-Intellectualism in America. And it's not just America. This what, this populist wave is happening in almost every country in the world right now. Right. But he particularly traces America, and there's this real connection between being educated and being untrustworthy. That people who operate from the gut are inherently operating from goodness. And the KKK really used this uh, well during the Civil Rights Movement, which was, you know, these these kind of like overeducated Jews are kind of sneaky and they're using uh, all the tricks they've learned to, to empower themselves and disempower the good Christian moral people who, uh, who don't have these tools. And so the connection between education and immorality is very strong. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. and I... S- I wouldn't be able to place that, but now you saying that, I... Yeah, the, the gut is pure, which is, really confuses me because the Ten Commandments are based on the concept that the gut is not pure. <laughs> right. Based it's like, on listen like, to me, I'm a higher power. Like, Christianity is yeah. based on, like, th- these people are informed and elite, and they're telling us how to behave. Well, God. And listen to God, but yeah. don't listen to a, uh, a doctor. <laughs> don't yeah. listen to climatologists. <laughs> yeah, but, but the Ten Commandments are basically, like, left to your own gut, you are going to kill... You are going to fuck che- your neighbor, fuck your neighbor, cheat your wives. <laughs> yeah. Your cell phone's going to ring. It's going to say your parents' name, and you are not going to honor them. Thy honor, 
like mother and father because you're going to ignore that cell phone call. Like all of our instincts sh- are bad. Of the most of the commandments, that's the one I wrote. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like you see that I you see that their parent your parents name and you're like, uh. Yeah, and my mom calls, you know. Of course five she does. To six times a week cuz she's yeah. a Catholic uh, Italian widow from Long Island. It's like the power of guilt she wields it like you a gotta pick that up. force. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's doing? Uh-huh. What else is new? Uh-huh. Jonathan uh, so and so, uh, David is going to dental school. Okay, mom, I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the part, and this proves you're not Jewish, where your mom asks you about you. All right, that's yeah. interesting. It, my, anytime I this is this is a great. Here's a good example of a call, especially now that my mom's like in her mid sixties, and I haven't I, I don't see her as frequently. Hey, Joanne, how's it going? It's Jonathan. It's okay. Wait, What's, wait, wait, wait. Let's pause on this already. Yeah. Hey Joanne? I call her mom, ma, and Joanne, like often. Is yeah. her name Joanne? Yeah. Well that's a little better, but <laughs> yeah. still it's weird. It's very it's very weird. Did you start that as a kid and then not stop? I started it when I was like nineteen or something. So I guess I, I would refer to that as a kid now. But wow. back then I thought But it, it was I, when I was like in high school, I started calling my parents I watched a lot of Letterman, I think it was influenced by them. I would either call them babe. Or ma'am and sir. <laughs> oh, that's my dad. I'm made, glad I my dad made me call him sir until I was like fourteen. Oh no! And he was not. My dad's not was not in the military at all. Was he like the great Santini though? He was just like he believed himself to be like you know some pauper genius like uh, uh, sort of like you'll respect me. Everything was about like respect and like earning your respect and like I I. Watching Mr. Rogers, we were talking about Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. that movie's called. Watching Mr. Rogers teaching like the kids like stuff like I talked to my wife about this. Like in Mr. Rogers, he's like, Well, I'm trying to help kids learn to deal with whatever feelings they may have. And I'm like, Oh, that's so interesting. Imagine like and then I also watched that uh, I'm all over the place, but I also watched that documentary Fire in Paradise that's on Netflix about the Paradise. Oh, Fire. I worked at the Paradise Post. You did in, co- in college for a summer. Oh I wow, worked did, the newspaper there. Did you go to school out here or in New York? Out here. Oh, cool. Uh, where'd you go? Uh, when Stanford. Oh, excuse us. Yeah, that's why I'm ready. <laughs> no, you're not gonna get out here and defend those elites. <laughs> Wait, wait, so back to before oh, so, so Paradise. And, and I saw the documentary Fire in Paradise, and a teacher is a teacher is talking to these like elementary school students, and it's like after the fire, they were like relocating. It's like, it's okay if you're upset. Let's talk about why it's completely reasonable that you feel are is anyone feeling angry and they don't know why? Is anyone feeling sad and they don't know why? And I'm like, oh, these lessons, this is so important. The shit my dad was teaching me was like, Johnny, if you're ever in a fight. You hit the biggest guy first. Like everything was about like. By the way, you just literally did the Trump impression for your dad. Because my dad, that's I can do. This comes up so frequently. I can do the Trump impression because he sounds just like my dad. Because Trump, you're right. I know so many people like Trump. It's crazy because he is. He's. I mean, he's a Long Island dude. He's not exactly. He's like a Long Island. He's what people on Long Island look up to Trump before because they were like he owns casinos he's got money he's got class because he has yes. money it's that like capitalism above all it's materialism above, yeah 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 and uh like so my dad sounds like uh Trump just like nasally he's like I gotta go to the store pick up some hamburgers that's what my dad sounds like and then Trump's like I gotta go to the store and pick up some hamburgers so all you've really done the difference there is, is make the stupid Trump well no now. you've you've and i find this interesting you've you've raised the voice you've made it a little less masculine to do trump yeah well because i think and now especially the more you hear trump you hear a lot more like 
well, you know, we got some of the best, most, eh, and none of these elites, you know, like he'll go, Very. Like, he'll go They're, up on like, he's like, we got some of the biggest, strongest. They're strong. They're big. They're strong. There's you know? a lot of, of classic um, gay language, the fabulous. Oh, and yeah. Well, all be- that stuff. Because I think a lot of, uh, like that. Yes, they overlap. They they overlap because it's the language of wealth and opulence. It, like, it, isn't this ballroom fabulous? Yes. yes. Okay. So wait. So you're. So the Mr. Rogers was anti- so. Oh, what? sorry. Yeah, to back it, to back it up. This is perfect having someone on the podcast who can manage tangents. <laughs> <laughs> you need to host this thing, by the way. <laughs> if you want to make a huge downgrade and start making hundreds of I've, dollars a month, let I've me know. I've interviewed people before. <laughs> yeah, it's almost as if you've done this before. Yeah, um, but it was like one of those things watching, and I'm like, that's and that's talking about elitism. I find I believe myself to be elite now because I find I yes. think I'm smarter and more informed than a lot of people. But I I came from a place where it was like. You know, like street smarts above all, you know, like the yeah. shit that was like all we learned. Because my dad was a high school dropout. My mom was a college dropout. So it was like everything was about like you got to work hard. You got to, you know, be nice to be this, that, yeah. like all that. It was just like all all the shit I learned growing up was like grooming me to hold down a union job. You know what I mean? Like, But what, one thing that I get into in the book about populace is uh, and, and kind of the moment we're living in is the tribalism. Uh, and yes. the nationalism and the and one thing you just talked about was the, the honor culture stuff, which is, you know, you can go back to Hatfields and McCoys, but the idea or gangs or mafia or um, the idea that if your honor is besmirched, you you have to defend that at all costs, right? And, and your family's honor and your friend's honor. And I talk about the fact that like in these kind of boat elite cultures, the the idea of of fighting. If if someone insults you, if someone insults your mother, like you know, if you watch, uh, even though again they're rich, but they're boat elite, the desperate housewives will throw wine in each other's faces. Yeah, like the intellectual elite. She do- disrespect me. It's about yes. disrespect yes. and honor. How could you? Yes. How could you? That kind of shit. Yeah. And and that's honor cultures are very big on that, and that's kind of what we're moving into in these nationalist tribalist times. But it, but like my people, the intellectual elite, like or even just. Yeah, we don't care about our honor. Like if right. you if you insult us, we just walk away. Yeah. Like we know our wine is too good to throw. And we and like we and if you like honk at us and like want us to like walk out of our car cuz you cut us off. Yeah. It's like, not it ain't, this no. ain't it, chief. I'm not I'm not getting in a fist fight on the 101. No. I'm not getting like, in a fist fight at all. No, the honking's going to disturb our NPR listening. <laughs> yeah. Like it is weird that the percentage of people, and I grew up as one of them, but I'm not that anymore. The percentage of people who like are one step away from like a physical altercation, you know what I mean? Well, like, you had to. I've heard Dak Shepard talk about this on his competing podcast, which is that like he was at a diner in Detroit, and if someone, if another man made eye contact for too long, like I'm doing to you right now, you had no choice. But you either fuck fight. or fight. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but that is it, right? Right. Yeah. And when you were talking about Mr. Rogers before, when I was in high school. I went to high school in Jersey and there was a lot of honor culture stuff. And there was this kid we called Buddha, not because he was wise, just because he was kind of heavy. And he was like, he was like a uh, Italian guy wore a lot of gold chains. His dad owned a Cadillac dealership in town. Oh, that's, and, this uh, is awesome. And he was, he was kind of tough and scary. I'd never talked to him in my whole life. And by senior year, I was going to like parties, which I could encounter people who weren't in my immediate little nerd group. And I was at a party and Buddha, whose real name I won't give, walked up to me. 
he was drunk and he started talking to me, which was weird enough. And what he decides to talk to me about, I assume because he thinks I'm gay or smart or I don't know. Um, uh, I'm not gay and I'm not that smart, but he assumed, I think, both. And he walked up to me and he's like, tells me this story out of nowhere, which is that he and his brother would watch Mr. Rogers, but if their dad caught them, he would lock them in their closet oh. for watching. So they have to like, one of them would have to keep an eye out, an ear open to see if their dad was coming home while they watch, watch Mr. Rogers. And when Mr. Rogers died, uh, I was working at Time Magazine and that's what I wrote for his obituary. I just wrote Buddha's story. Oh, but I think, I think that was a, I think Mr. Rogers for people perhaps like your dad was very threatening because he was not about that kind of Sopranos, the honors culture. Yeah. And I think Trump really, I mean, Tony Soprano and Trump, to me, have a lot in common because Trump is making the argument that the world is corrupt and that um, everyone's looking out for themselves only and people only want money and power. Right. And you, Which if, l- lets them justify their own actions, like Tony. Tony's like, it's totally, a killer-be-killed totally. world. Totally, yeah. and, and if you don't see that, and if you think people are out there trying, if you think po- any politician is out there because he thinks or she thinks that they're going to make the world better... You're naive and you're a dupe and the world's going to run over you. And what you, everyone's corrupt, including me, says Trump. And so you have to pick the mo, the person who represents your tribe, who's going to be out there being corrupt and fighting for you. Right. Cause there's a lot of that. I'm your president shit. Yeah. And, yeah. and once you believe in that kind of, and, and by the way, as corrupt as you think America is, it's not, it's less corrupt than it's almost ever been and way less corrupt than any country. Yeah. Where you have to, every just, time... There's a light shining on uh, the nooks and crannies now. Like, yeah. now that we're like... No, it could more, be better. It, we're more aware of, like, political action committees than ever before. You know, totally. like, we're learning about the money yes. in politics and, and stuff. you know, it could, it should be better. It's like the meritocracy. It will be better. People need to work on this. But to, but to burn it all down and, and to replace it with something that's, if you keep believing that the world is corrupt when it's not, it's going to become corrupt. If you stop, if you keep acting, acting like everything's corrupt <sighs> and you're going to be corrupt, and then we're screwed. Then we're like in India, where every time you get people are pulling you over just to shake you down, and every time you want to build something, you're paying someone off even way more than now, and nothing works. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess I never. Uh, you said something before about like defending the honor of your tribe tribes, and I think uh, the. People are in multiple tribes now, I think, yeah. I believe, like this tribalism thing. And I think there are weird tribes like Star Wars is a tribe now. Like oh, Star Wars fandom is a tribe. And if you besmirch the honor of Star Wars... I just heard I, Kevin Smith talking about this. Like when he was growing up before Siskel and Ebert, almost, there was only sports teams had like tribes who were who were offended and willing to fight and he's like now it's people who are fans of movies yeah now there's people who are like marv like the like martin scorsese being like i love that that like, was so elite that's so i love this it. is a great this is a great i like, couldn't have agreed more uh, distillation yeah. of your i can't i enjoy the marvel movies i like i also like caramel corn but if I'm right. going to sit down, I want to watch The Irishman or eat a roasted chicken. You know what but, I mean? But, is, but you have. But I feel like you're able to distinguish those two things. Yes, but I think a lot of people are just. There's this weird thing, like a defense of Marvel and Disney is like they have to be good. They're making billions of dollars, right? And I think that's what, like, you can see that with Trump. Like, we're literally in a world where people are. The pu- 
uh, politicians and people are all anti-elite, and then a bartender from Queens gets power, and people are yeah. like, well, she's just a bartender. And it's like, this is exactly your the path you want to talk about. And I think it's it's not, there's no harm in liking Marvel movies, but you no. can't, or, or even... Liking them a, more than Scorsese movies. You can even do that. But you have to understand there's a quality difference. Yeah, you have that, to understand that there's just, it's a subjective world. And if Martin Scorsese says Mar- Marvel movies are like rides, it should not take away any of your enjoyment. But you also should realize he's right. And it's, yeah. it's fine to like rides. It's fine to like read Ulysses and watch porn, but you can't th- say they're equal. Right. right? right. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. And, and it's it, also crazy to like, it's Scorsese's not a film critic. He's a filmmaker. Yeah. He's like someone who's like, I just do a different thing. It's like if you it's ask a totally fucking, different thing. Yeah, if you yeah. ask Da Vinci about Warhol, he would be like, This is not for me. I don't fucking But okay, do. one we both care about food. And one thing that drives me crazy is sommeliers who tell you like, Whatever you like is what you like. That's great. And I think that's just so wrong. Right. Because it's like no, some wines are just better. And and if you experience more wine, you will realize that like the initial punch in the face of a big, juicy, sweet California red it is enjoyable, but it's not you're only getting one thing out of it. One direct thing. You're not enjoying the complexity of of a more subtle experience. Right, right. And and not to lead people down a path where they can enjoy something more interesting, I think, is wrong. And just telling people whatever they like is the best thing is wrong. And having adults just read young adult novels is a mistake. And it leads to a really simple culture where we, be- if you just watch Marvel movies, you will believe in a world where there's good and evil. And there's just good people and bad people. And of course, you're a good person. Right. I mean, there's nothing that annoys me more than people say, well, I'm a good person. Yeah. Maybe that's the first tip off to me that there's some bad shit going well, you know on with that person. Pe- you know what good people never say? I'm a good person. <laughs> like, <laughs> like people who are objectively good are rarely ever explaining that they're good people. It's so tribal. Yeah. It's the belief that there's evil. And 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 I get to this in the book because I spend the first third of the book, I go to this town called Miami, Texas, which had the highest percentage of Trump voters in the country. And I spend a week there getting to know, there's only 500 people there, so it didn't take me that long to get to know all of them. But- <laughs> The the belief that they're a town of five hundred people where four hundred voted for Trump or something ninety six percent, Jesus yeah. Christ! Uh, but the, the, you know, that's four hundred and eighty, right, or something. Like wow, that. that's impressive. Uh, well, I guess it's not that hard because it's four out of yeah. I think it's four eighty. Well done. Twenty people didn't vote for Trump. Yeah. Probably just didn't vote. I met a bunch of them. No, uh, one I one had voted for Hillary. One had voted for that libertarian candidate. Oh, uh, the guy? I interviewed Gary, that guy. Gary, uh, Gary yeah. Johnson? Yeah, I spent yeah. a day with that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Two days with that guy. Oh, what's he, is he interesting? He uh, he is pro-marijuana yeah. and anti-war, and that got him a lot of attention. That- He's super goofy nice. <laughs> right. Like he, he was actually a rich person who was like a car, uh, contractor, real estate guy, who made a lot of money and then became the governor of... New Mexico. Oh, interesting. And does like triathlons and divorce. Like he was a complicated, goofy kind of guy. Weird. He's almost like the other coin of Trump. Like they're both like weird real estate contract business people. And one and had no. I mean, what the one thing? I mean, Trump was the right at the right place at the right time. Right. Right. You know, we got the the doofus version, and other countries got the smart populist. (laughs) Yeah. We're lucky. So lucky we got the doofus version. Oh right, because if we got like a cunning populist, oh my god, if we got Bannon or if we got 
oh, Boris yeah. Johnson or someone who has an idea of how to control power. Oh, yeah, and like, not screwing up, not screwing himself at every turn because he just has to react to whatever's yeah, the, in front like, of him. The saving grace is that our big uh, arch villain is dumb. Thank so God. dumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we got really lucky for now. Yeah, for now. But he's yeah. paved a way for freaks. He has paved a way for for populists. I mean, I think the, the I think. I think the parties are being realigned. In a oh, deep I think way. so. I I, yeah. I uh, agree totally. The whole the discussion that our we lived through politically, which was you know this remnant of the Cold War, which was like how much com- communism have you dipped in my <laughs> capitalism? Hey, uh, Arthur's dog walkers here. Artie, go outside, bud. <laughs> What's Arthur's dog walkers name? That's Will. Hey, Will. <laughs> hey, Will. Thanks, bud. <laughs> working for, working from yeah. Go ahead. Working from home is interesting. <laughs> I like that you are too busy to walk your dog. I know. Well, I've got back-to-back podcasts today. Sometimes it's just easier to Who's book. next? Uh, I, my podcast, Action Boys. Okay. Uh, yeah. Number um, one, Action Boys? <laughs> number one, Action okay. uh, Number one action Fuck Boys. Uh, funny, you just reminded me, for the Action Boys, we, uh, the movie this week we're doing is Crimson Tide, and the it's it's uh, Denzel Washington is a... Harvard and Annapolis grad submarine sure. captain who studied war study and did all that. And Gene Hackman is a guy who's been through it all and sort of like goes by the gut. And it's he hates Denzel because he's like an educated black oh. man. And he's like, you don't have war experience. The closest thing this guy's ever been to war is this, you know, graduating system or whatever. And it was real and it's funny because it's I didn't even put it together until we're talking about it now. It's pretty much on the I've premise. I've never seen it, so what? Oh, it's a great fucking movie, what, too. It's Tony um, Scott. It's 90, 1995. And this, who, it turns out they need each other? No, it, tur- oh. it turns out like uh, uh, they go head-to-head over like there's a strong decision to be made, and the crew is divided on the submarine and stuff Do like that. Do not worry about ruining this for me. I can handle it. What, <laughs> who turns out uh, Denzel right? ends up being right. Interesting. What happens is they get the word that they have to launch nuclear, uh, but then they get half of another uh, radio signal that's... And Gene Hackman says, like, we've been told to launch. And Denzel's like, well, what if this says, do not launch? We will be causing nuclear... Ho- they're a nuclear sub. You know, that's, a, that's an actual thing that happened in Russia, in the Soviet Union. Is it? Yeah. This guy got... Um, he died recently, actually. But there was information coming that the U.S. had launched. Like, the computers said the U.S. had launched. And this guy was like, I think that could be a bug. Like, I think he had reasons to suspect that it wasn't true. But he was supposed to launch. And and it, the longer he waited, the more likely they wouldn't be able to respond. Right. And he waited kind of longer than they should have, and, they, and he was right. Obviously. Right. And if he would have launched... Uh, what he thought was a defense, yeah. he would actually be launching. He was supposed to have launched. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He's launching an attack, which would then cause a response. Yeah, which would cause. Yeah, and that's like what all of the Crimson Tide is about. It's very cool. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Well, so it's a real. So could you make that movie now, or the elite are correct? I don't. I no. I guarantee it. Like, not a movie like rooting for the black guy who went to Harvard and Annapolis. <laughs> right. Over yeah. the guy with the uh, over the guy who's been a captain for 20 years and is the only sub captain who's seen war, you know. I don't know if that's a military movie that flies right now. Yeah, it, oh, that's interesting. I really wonder. It's very weird to have like escalation between ru- watching all these like 80s and 90s action movies where Russia is like a bad guy. It's like really funny that we're, we're back arguably there. back at yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that it's there's something crazy about this anti elitism where it's 
people don't even want to be considered smart anymore. No, getting people to call themselves intellectual elite is really. I've been I've been going and doing interviews, and I first thing I try and do is get the person who's interviewing me to admit it. Oh, interesting. It's often really hard. Yeah, I I would have I would be hesitant to admit it solely because of. Uh, Am I really intellectual and elite? Not because of any shame of it. Oh, yeah, no, I would but... be like, I would second. I assume I am just because I'm very informed about my my pockets. And I was like, he's like, no, I don't think of myself an elite. I'm like, let's do this. You went to Yale. He's like, well, but I barely got it. I'm like, you're a Rhodes Scholar. He's like, yeah, but because. And I'm like, you own a podcast company with Malcolm Gladwell. He's like, yeah, but we know each other. I'm like, this is getting crazier. <laughs> yeah, dude. Right, right. Yeah, you can't. If once you're a Rhodes Scholar, you can't really yeah, say you're out of the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't be like I'm practically a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> Although we have so many, what I call in my book, uh, elite populists, the Boris Johnsons who went to like Oxford, who are claiming that they're you know they're the real Brit. Or, you well, know. It's just you're. This is like, and this is tr- Tucker uh, Carlson. Yeah, is, is a, I interview in my book. I spent a good deal of time with Tucker Carlson and Scott Adams. The creator of Dilbert. I went to his house, hung out with him. Oof. But Tucker is really the populist <laughs> king now. Right. Despite, you know, a bow tie populist is insane. <laughs> who went to uh, boarding school and whose dad ran PBS and grew up in DC. And yeah. Um, even Trump will shit on the New York elite. And that's what he is. Like, that's where he yeah. came from. Kind of, but also, like, never quite. In, right? No, like but he that's would like, never get invited to Davos until he became president. Right, but if he called, like, if someone called him the New York elite a year before he was elected, he might. Well, okay, so there's this he might mo- not even run for president. There's this moment in the book <laughs> if someone where just let him into a club. <laughs> I explain the difference between the intellectual elite and the boat elite at this moment in the book when Trump makes this speech in Minneapolis and he's railed against the elite the whole time he's running for office. Like that's one of the major themes of his campaign. Suddenly, he's president. He's at the speech in Minneapolis. He goes off script, and he's like, why did they get to call themselves the elite? We're the elite. We have bigger apartments. We have more money, um, and we have, we have better boats. And I, was like, and I was like, oh, yeah, these are boat people. There's nothing worse than people who own boats, in my opinion. Like, <laughs> we've made a law where if every country has agreed, if they can be 12 miles away from us, they can do whatever they want. Oh yeah, that's... these are people that buy the most expensive thing they'll ever own, and the first thing they do is slam it as hard as they can with a bottle of champagne. <laughs> They're just the worst. Wasting people. an expensive beverage on a huge expensive, <sighs> like the fucking yacht shit is the worst. insane to me. Like I'm from an island, so to me, boat people growing up were like shoeless fluke fishermen. Oh, no, they're fine. Yeah, yeah. Also, I'm not sure how I feel about people with sailboats. They may get an exemption, but yeah, it's the yacht people we're talking about. Yes, the yacht people. Yeah. I, and I would say, sail, we're a tri-state area, guys. You know the kids who ha, parents were sailors, right? You ever meet I one of I don't really. Like, not from my neighborhood, but like later on in life, you'd be like in Connect, like you'd like see a guy in boat shoes and like that belt Jersey that has whales on. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we, how do we feel about those people? Those people are... the. the they're Duke lacrosse players to me. You know what I mean? They're all they're just douchebags. Like, yeah, they're all okay. douchebags right. to me. Yeah. But the yacht shit is like the craziest shit. It's like billionaires do such good stuff for us. It's like you can get a boat for $8 million less than that. That is still insanely opulent and have $8 million to give everyone that works in your that works on the boat a dollar raise. And is there, are there still, <laughs> I'm not on Instagram or Bumble. 
I mean, I have my Instagram, but I'm not really looking. <laughs> right. But I'm, I'm not like watching rap videos anymore. Are people still doing that, like Adam uh, Sandberg, the, I'm on a boat kind uh, yeah. of thing? Yeah, there, there's still an element to that. There is a the, guy. Uh, people tie being on a belt, uh, being on a boat to wealth and opulence. They do. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, like, if someone said that, like, it's all the fucking uh, what's the uh, the talented Mr. Ripley shit? Like we're on a boat in San Tropez or whatever, you know. Like to yeah. me, that's like yeah, the yeah. yacht off the Amalfi co- Coast. It's just like yeah, 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 the yeah. wealthiest, douchiest thing you. Can oh, do. I was yeah. in um, I was at the Cannes uh, Festival, not the the film festival, the advertising one. Yeah, I was with Shane Smith, who was like traveling around by someone's yacht, and that seemed that seems like right the vice guy <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah that's that's so funny like he's like we're down and dirty doing uh vice videos well, i'm in a yacht so. yeah <laughs> like, but that's I like got, my employees are like in fallujah making fucking web videos for two hundred dollars <laughs> that seems like the all part of that same life right right, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> doing lines off of the rails of a yacht rails on rails on yeah. rails um what it, what can we do like what does the future look like for this for like I don't know. That's what, okay. So I've, I realized that I am not capable of telling people how to fix anything. Like that's for politicians. That's for people with their own expertise. Like I just, you're an observer. People also jump to the solution without figuring out what the problem is. Right. And they just want it to end. They're just like, how do we fix this? I'm like, well, can we spend a minute listening to people who are upset? So I do spend the first third of the book asking people why they hate me. Like asking people, going to Miami, Texas and figure out why people hate the elite and just digging into that is so much more complicated and so much more interesting. Yeah. Cause it's easy to just brush it off as like racism or jealousy yeah. or uh, anti-Semitism or racism or yeah. whatever, but it's not that it's not well, always that. It's, it's not a, just that. I mean, right. I think when one thing I noticed when I went to Miami, Texas and these people were much more educated and much, uh, much smarter and, much richer than I had imagined in this town. And, and one thing that became clear to me was that they, if you ask them, are white Christians more discriminated against than black people? They would all, they, I did. Everyone I talked to said yes. And the polls show that. And that didn't make sense to me. It just was like, it seemed ignorant, obviously. And then the more I drilled down, I was like, Oh, people notice acceleration. They don't, they feel acceleration. They don't feel speed. And yeah. if you're a white Christian, you have less power than you used to have. And if you're black, you may have a little more power than you used to have. Right. And that's what you feel. Because, I mean, it used to be, if you were a white Christian dude, you could get a job because people would be like, he's a good guy. Right. You know, he comes uh, from his, he's a friend of his friend. family. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't play as much anymore. No. And, and, if, and they feel that. And their towns, right. these rural it, towns have less power. If, you, if we're like just anecdotally sort of broad swaths like oh uh white christians have like devalued in the eyes a little bit and black people have uh have gotten things a little bit better they're still a huge disparity but you're saying the christians just feel that things are slowing down for them They, they 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 feel an existential threat to their tribe that their tribe and if you go to these rural towns you're like yeah these oil and gas isn't a growing industry and like your town is much smaller than it was 200 years ago, whereas yeah. LA is way bigger than it was. Yeah, yeah and it's Dude. funny because like their ex- existential threat right. isn't being shot by cops or anything like that. No. Their existential existential threat is like I'm not going to have it as good. My generationally, I'm not. It's not going to be as good for us as it was previously. I guess, but it's it's real. It's like 
I'm not sure that town, that Miami, Texas, is going to be around in 50 years. Right. Like literally, it's built around. Uh, I've been to towns that don't exist anymore in the U.S. Like it's not. Right. It's, it, it happens. Yeah, they're not wrong. Per they're se. not wrong. Yeah. yeah. And and I feel if they don't turn things around now, if you're in rural England that used to, in a town that used to be a coal town, and now has like some crappy warehouse where people from like Poland and Romania are working. If you're if you don't turn things around now, your way of life is going to be gone. Right. And so they don't like Trump. These are Christians from Texas. Like Trump is disgusting to them. But the way they would say it to me is like if you have a cockroach infestation and the exterminator comes and he's crude and he's showing his butt crack like and he's spraying poison around your house. Yeah, but, but it works. Yeah. Oh. Then like he's your guy. Like you your general doesn't have to be your general has to be the one that wins the war, not the most charming guy in the room. Right, right. So, so they're willing to throw away a lot right now to save their tribe. Well, yeah, I feel like oh, that's so interesting. And people are moving to cities all around the world. Like this way of life here in LA is dominant in the world. This globalized, you know, if you the things that we don't even think of as big change, when you go to these smaller towns, they're just like, I don't know, gay marriage, like that doesn't seem right. Or yeah. like um, transgender stuff is just weird or this me too stuff hold on you know um, just the role of women like after church I went I went to this uh, Southern Baptist church and afterwards I had a meal at someone's house and it was um, it was a lot of us and so there wasn't enough room in one of the rooms for us to eat so the women ate in one room and the men ate in the other room and they brought us our food and we ate first which yeah. um and if if that's your lifestyle, and then someone is looking to overturn that basic, you know, power structure that you're living under, you're like, hold on, like I don't know if that's better, right? Right? And we're we're moving at such a fast pace with diversity and everything else that that they're they're freaked out. Oh yeah, that's really it. It makes a lot of sense. It there is this like. Cities versus non-cities, which tribalism too. And it's funny because they're like the elite that live in cities and that we do. Elite people live in cities. First elite, thing they do is move to a city. Right. But a city is chock full of people at a completely different level of wealth. And, you know, like yeah, there's a building that there's multiple buildings in this city that feature way more than like five the 500 people in that town yeah. in Texas. There's buildings here that have more than 500 people living in them and all of them are poorer than the people in town. You know what I mean? Like that, yes. that exists here. We have people it, living not on the streets. It's like it's we But that's what they see also. They see <laughs> these they and they're not wrong. They see a bunch of homeless people in our cities. And they see a bunch of people looking at their phones all day. And they see people living in an apartment building who don't know each other and talk to each other. And if they have a problem with their kids, can't turn to anyone. And they're like, that's not the dystopia I want. Right. Like, And you're doing that in exchange for what? Like fancy meals? Like, What is, what is your <laughs> My problem? My wife and I talk about this a lot. It's like the fundamental difference between – because like her entire family and my entire family both live in our respective hometowns. We both have two younger brothers who now have wives and kids, and they all live... Where is she from? She's from Westchester. Okay. Again, you want to talk about uh, New Jersey and upstate New York having very different opinions about Long Island? Like, Westchester people are like, Long Island is bullshit. And I'm like, Long Island is exactly the same as Westchester, but with beaches. So we win. <laughs> Do you think? I feel like Westchester is Westchester very- has a little bit more of like... 
an elite yeah. vibe than Long Island. Like, but that's coming from Long Island, where we call Westchester upstate. You know? I did too, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. My wife is from actual upstate New York, and I didn't know what that meant. We we uh, my one of my best friends growing up. Uh, one of my best friends in the city, one's from Buffalo and one's from like Western New York, and they're from way up north. And to me, I would c- refer to where Tiffany was from, which is 20 minutes from the Bronx me as too. upstate New York. I thought, I thought that's what upstate New York was. Yeah, same. I didn't even, uh, yeah, like Albany's also upstate. Rochester's also upstate. Yeah, my wife's from like Yonkers north, north of Albany. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm sorry. So you're both from places where. We're both from places where, and we were like, oh, I think the main reason, like, we moved like it can be boiled down to we wanted more restaurant selection which i think is just sort of like uh you know if you extrapolate out from that that's there's right. a lot of things that you want but that is a fundamental thing yes. of like and tying it back to food which is how we first met um it's like i moved to a city because i wanted more experiences in but life. food I, we both feel strongly about food I, I do feel like food is an introduction i mean phil rosendahl talk about this yeah. to other worlds and other cultures and I'm just like everything I've learned. I and you know right? it's like the fucking ethnocentric in me when I meet someone who's a, of a certain uh, f- you know ethnicity or from a certain country, and I'm like, oh, what do you guys eat there? I've only had you know this. Yes. I've only had pho and uh, banh mi. What else do Vietnamese people exactly. eat? Exactly, like, and that's so interesting. What part to of me. Vietnam? What's the big food there? Yeah, like exactly. where can I get that? And it, and if that. Is maybe it is like a weird form of like uh, casual colonialism or whatever, but it's more for me. I'm I'm just a I'm a curious person. I've realized, like, right? Uh, yeah. And so and, there's a difference of people who grew up in your town or my town, very Italian, and that ate or it used to be now it's very Indian, uh, but they they would eat the same kind of meals and they were like thought it was weird to eat anything else. And I still have family members who are basically anything that's not chicken is weird. Yeah, uh, I have family that like. Do- brother like 30 something year old men who don't eat fish who just don't eat seafood right and i i didn't eat seafood growing up because the only seafood i ever saw was like frozen sam you know what i mean and i'm like my my parents would be like the one time we had fish it was like frozen tilapia and i was like this doesn't taste that good yeah i'm like so i'm like i guess i don't like fish i'm a chicken on the grill or steak or burger guy well there's this whole thing in my book about trump because he eats um his steaks. He's very into steak. And fast food. <laughs> Fa- steaks and fast food, which drives me crazy. But he eats his steaks well done with ketchup. Ugh. Which is nothing. And remember when the moment I knew I was voting for Obama was when. <laughs> when he asked for Grey Poupon? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's when he was running the first time, uh, the f- first time he won. And he said, he was talking about the economy and the problems. And he said, Have you seen the prices of arugula at Whole Foods lately? <laughs> I was like, this is my this is my guy. I can imagine shooting uh, your TV like you're a fucking one of those uh, families in Texas. You shoot your TV. And oh, oh you're totally. Like, you're like a rugula, and they're like, well, some people call it rocket. It's like boom. <laughs> no one's called it rocket in a while. How yeah, that they? didn't ha- that didn't no, work. That right? Lost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that didn't last. But yeah, he, the, the, he's able to distinguish between his bitter greens, which is what <laughs> I really enjoyed. Thing. But no, the I think people who moved to cities wanted. All kinds of experiences, food being probably the easiest one to just right. walk into and get. But a fundamental part of food and moving to a city is the experience you're seeking out too is people. Yeah, I mean, like pe- you're choosing to live piled on top of each other and, for a reason, and just have a bigger world. And when I was talking about C.S. Lewis warning about going into the inner ring, like that's what I wanted. I wanted to get into the loop 
And I kept calling it that in New York because I was like, I was working in New York. I was fat checking. I wasn't getting invited to parties. I wasn't seeing this world, but I knew it was out there. And you wanted to be a writer. You're a curious person. I wanted to be a writer, but I also just like wanted to be around people who knew things and had interesting stories and had connections to power. And this is the same. I call, I just call that like curiosity but i feel like that's exact i'm i i would never have referred to it as being in the loop but like but, when i was a but, kid my favorite in Manhattan, show you knew these things happened right, right? yeah and you didn't know how to get in you would see a picture that had like david bowie and bill gates or you just and you're like walking. what what is that yeah but you were so close living in manhattan you'd, right. like, or brooklyn you'd walk by like something and you'd see the announcement of what it, it's like I just literally in Manhattan a few weeks ago, and I saw there was a party for the Michelin Awards, and like you'd walk by that kind of stuff in New York, you'd be like, "Who's in there? Yeah. How do you get in there?" It'd be so like, oh, yeah, exactly. who are these so chefs? Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so I really want—that's what I wanted. Like, right. I didn't want money. I didn't want like a huge house. Like, I was going to be a journalist. I could have gone to law school <laughs> if I wanted that stuff. Right, right. What I wanted was like access to find out about the world and to have and to go places, have experiences. Yeah, and I and to, it's weird that that's frowned upon now. Oh, it's and yeah, and like, very and like much. Sort, of, sort of like in a general sense, there's like a backlash to wanting, you know, like whereas trying just telling people, I I had this discussion with my dad, who's uh, who's a really smart guy, um, but has a little bit of more of the the boat elite kind of attitude, and I remember him asking me why I was doing something like writing a a pilot or something. He's like, I had a fight with my wife. Why are you uh, writing this? I'd be like, um, writing a pilot because like I get to write a pilot and then see it acted out and like find out what that's like. He's like, huh? That that's what that's what my wife said. I thought it was just the money. <laughs> and I was like, no. But there's but if you say you're doing something for the money, it's justifiable, right? It's <laughs> acceptable in this culture when that should be like the the least the, acceptable yeah, it should reasons. Be, you should that judge someone that selfish. says I do this for the money. Yeah. Like, uh, people I know went from being uh, someone I know went from being a teacher, which I thought was one of the most uh, you know validating things about them as a person. I was like, well, they're a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but hey, they're, they're a teacher, teacher. Yeah. elementary school teacher. They went to admin and became like a vice principal, and I was like, oh, do you feel weird being like now you're like like uh, they want to eventually become a superintendent? And I'm like, oh, does that? It's a completely different. Like it's like yeah. getting into acting. And then switching to producing, uh, to, yeah, switching yeah. to being a development executive. And yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I get it, but like, or a casting director or something. It, it's like a weird flip. And I was talking about, it, and the person was like, "Well, if I ever want to make two hundred grand a year, there's you can't right. do it as a teacher." And I was like, said to them, I was like, "Well, you didn't have to be a teacher. <laughs> like, yeah. if you wanted to seek out six figures, maybe being this a teacher was not road. the stuff. Yeah. yeah, you could have probably done something else for the first eight years and built yourself. And, and look, it- I totally understand people want to have security and people yeah. want a better life. And, and they have family and, and you want to take care of them. And I, I don't begrudge that decision. I begrudge a society that thinks that is that gives moral credence to that decision. Yes. That's like, it's the, like you should be ashamed when you say that. Yeah. You should be like, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, just, I really, uh, and we like no, $75,000 totally, raise and way different. I'd be like, Oh, I totally understand that. Yeah. Sorry. You had to do that. Right. Yeah. And instead it's like, you know, it's people are lauded for making those yeah. choices. Like people are obsessed with Elon Musk and it's because he has money. I mean, yes, he's got interesting yeah. ideas or whatever, but people take what he says. It's this weird, it's this weird thing where it's like a video game 
uh, or you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons earlier because I have all this D and D paraphernalia. You have, you have too many. Yeah, I used to collect dice from you know, Comic Cons. As yeah. a former Dungeons and Dragons player, you don't need that many dice. Yeah, I, I just like the way it looks aesthetically. No, it does. Yeah. And you seem pretty focused on the twenty sided die. Yes. <laughs> well, those are the like I have a big one over there too. Um, yeah, the twenty sided die is the is one of the cutest and most useful. To be yeah, honest, hey, yeah, hey, you got thumbs up a lot. Yeah, it's all about that Thacko baby. Um, <laughs> but talking about uh, people's money, Dungeons Dragons. Oh, so uh, I feel like we live in a society where everyone's level or their skills yeah. is their checking account, and we like oh, and we're like someone so you, like the. My Black Mirror pitch would be like everyone's walking around the Grove with their, uh, uh, you know, net worth listed over their head, and people with the highest net worth get deference. Like, well, oh, hey, you make a lot of money. You should be the president. You make a lot of money. You should help us get to space. You make a lot of money. That your movie is good. Bob Iger, what you're doing for cinema is amazing. Not absolutely destroying it. You know. So, so I think we had an election where people really, I, I lots of people said. He made a lot of money. He's a good businessman. He'll be able to run the country. Right. Which is a totally different skill. <laughs> a completely different skill. And also, I got in this huge fight with my mom about this. She's like, good businessmen don't have 20 businesses closed down. <laughs> or they do, and they keep making money, and they keep surviving. But that's not the attitude you can have going into running a country. No, they're he totally... can't fold down America and then run a, no. launch a new country like with a different LLC. This to is not a business. From... Yeah, exactly. This is not a for-profit corporation. <laughs> right. So... That drives me crazy. And then... Um, There's just something about, and specifically from where I come from, like that blue-collar, Long Island, like aspirational life, where you see a guy who says he has a billion dollars, and you're like, well, He's lead better. the way, man. I yeah, know. You're, you're, this, that's what I want. I want a fucking golden toilet. Oh, my God. Like Gor me Gordon Sunderland, did you watch any of the impeachment hearings? Uh, the guy I can't, who, no. This guy made a bunch of real estate in the Northwest. Uh, Trump made him... so. You can donate money to. This is true with basically any president. You donate enough money, they will make you an They'll ambassador. Give you a title. They'll find. To, yeah. No, you'll actually go be the ambassador to like the Seychelles or something, oh, which cool. is awesome. Yeah, right. You right? get to like go live in like a vacation world. Oh, on with like half a, of America. Yeah. You get to live in this vacation world, and anyone who's important in town has to show you deference because you literally are talking to you know the American American government. Right. Right. And you get servants, and like it's great. This guy got made the. Um, ambassador to the eu right and he's and he's just a pacific doofus. northwest doofus. real estate guy yeah yeah and so he has to testify he knows nothing but he believes because he did well in business that he will be able to negotiate with the eu for america he really believes that it's like there's so, so much hubris there so what i talk about in the book is that um the intellectual elite the people who go to these conferences like davos um I go to a couple in the book. They aren't necessarily rich. Like there are people who work for NGOs. There's people who work for the government. There's people who work for universities who don't make that much money, but they're, they're experts who are very powerful. Uh, if you look at politicians, they don't make that much money. Uh, and that's, and so to not, equate, not officially, yeah, not officially. Yeah. And, and often, I mean, they make their money. You make your money after you're a politician. A usually. lot of them do. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them don't really care that much. Like I went to college with Cory Booker. Oh, and cool. Cory is one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And 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 I've met people from the left and right. I've met Rick Santorum. For the most part, these are people who really really care. And a lot of them could have 
Corey especially could have gotten made a lot of money. Like right. he was a Rhodes Scholar and a football player, and he's insanely charming, and like he he does know everyone on Wall Street. But he and instead he lived in a really scary apartment in Newark for a long time uh, because he wanted to be in and, charge and of it. Put right. his body physically at risk um, because right. he cared because he really wanted to change things and cared. And I find that most the cynical view of the world where those people don't exist is wrong. And the fact that that people assume that all these people are super rich is wrong. Right, yeah. yeah. It, 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 there is sort of that element of like uh, for business class or first class on a flight where it's yes. like... Yes, well, who are those people? I'm always fascinated. Yes, like, you're like, who are these people? And then you realize some people are people who are flying on behalf of a company, so they get. Some people are artists who are, you know... NBC is flying them. Some this one. fly a lot, and then some people are are people who are experienced flyers and do who do it a lot, and some people are just rich enough to buy their way in. But, okay, I, and that's I feel like when yeah. you talk about Davos, it's like there are people who are bringing their intellectual, there are people here for this, and then there are people who are like when you're ever at like a Hollywood party and you're like, who's that guy? And then someone's like, oh, they're just like this mega rich dude who's at these things. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't think there are people who buy the. I think the higher you go up, like Davos, people haven't bought the, their way in. No, I remember my old editor Walter Isaacson, who's. Uh, you ran the Aspen Institute and wrote the book on Steve Jobs, and uh, oh, cool. he never flew first class. Just doesn't care. Just not interested. Like even if he had, you know, it was on someone else's dime. He was yeah, it's just not important to him. And I always look when I go through first class, and I don't, I, I don't care either. I would never use miles. I would never waste anything to fly first <laughs> class. Like, I'm, I'm just gonna write in the back anyway. So uh, I always look at who those people are, and I'm wondering like. Like, are they doing this because it's easy? They're not paying. They really care. Yeah. Or they just want people to see them. Like, I, I love when I get to fly first class for work because, like, you know, contractually sag if you're flying. Isn't that weird? That's like one of the first times I ever flew was I wrote a pilot and Fox had to fly me. It's a dream, class. right? <laughs> and and the best part about it is I'm this like. 300 pound dude in like a graphic tee hat sunglasses noise canceling stoned as fuck and i'm just in like sweatpants and i'm like yes i'm in first class motherfuckers (laughs) and i do feel a little bit of like the fucking hillbilly i was flying for fox and um and i sit down you know you feel a little weird you're like i'm in first class this is weird and i knew this woman in la who used to be a sports illustrated swimsuit model stacy williams and she is flying back for like Sports Illustrated. And she's like, oh my God, we should sit together. I was like, my life has gotten real <laughs> weird, yeah. real fast. You're like, I'm a TV writer flying in first class, sitting next to a Sports Illustrated model. I couldn't have guessed this. None of those things should be happening. <laughs> right. and, and, and They no longer are. They no longer are. <laughs> it, it, all, it all worked out. But for a moment. I'm more of like a married and writing books guy now. <laughs> <laughs> but for a moment. So she asked the, the flight attendant and he's like, yeah, I can switch you. Let me just ask the person who's supposed to sit there. It's uh, it's Vidal Gore. And I was like, you mean Gore Vidal? He was like, no, it says Vidal Gore in the manifest. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Gore Vidal. <laughs> so Gore Vidal comes walking in. The flight attendant talks to him. He's like, sure, whatever. And are you like, oh, shit, maybe I'd rather sit next to Gore Vidal? <laughs> no, not. No. Being a heterosexual male no. dominates that situation. <laughs> I just like that more ridiculousness is being added on. Right, right, right. <laughs> I think I'm scared of Gore Vidal. So Gore Vidal sits next to whoever he sits next to. has a lovely flight. And then we're leaving, and I go to thank him. And I'm like, oh, I just want to say thank you for switching seats. Uh, you actually are good friends with this guy, John Dickerson, I work with at Time. And he, you know, it's so cool to meet you. And he's like, you work at Time Magazine. And I was like, yeah, I do. He's like, 
Walter Isaacson ruined that magazine. He brought in a bunch of like young people who write about themselves in first person. And, and, and I'm like, oh my God, Gore Vidal's talking about me. <laughs> That's all I can think of. As he insults me, I'm like, Gore Vidal kind of knows who I am. Like this, You're like, I got news for you, pal. That might have been me you read. <laughs> like, this is the best day of my life. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what a great way to end the conversation of defensive elitism. Uh, getting story, <laughs> getting roasted by Gore Vidal in first class. <laughs> well, Joel, thank you so much for coming on High and thank Mighty. You. Uh, where can people find you on social media or find your book? Just buy the book on Amazon. The book. Yeah. yeah. Or I don't care. if you, not Wherever you want to buy it. Yeah. Buy it from a bookstore for your own personal... Uh, buy it from your own bookstore. Yeah. Buy that's it, as, if as you're independent a bookstore as owner, as buy it from yeah, your own bookstore. For God's sake, go Open your own bookstore and buy it from them. You can start making money on your bookstore by buying your own book in defense of elitism, why I'm good at being elite, and why you uh, are will be once you read this book. I'm That's perfect. I'm you guessing. nailed it. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for coming on High and Mighty, Joel. I appreciate it, man. Thank and, you for having me. Hey, and good we're, luck. Stay elite out there. Were either of us high or mighty? Um, I am not high. I'm about... 10 hours off at this point all from right. it. <laughs> but all right, good enough. That'll, sh- that'll shift soon enough. Good. Good luck uh, with that. All right, well, I guess sort of talking about elitism is talking from, a, like, if you consider yourself elite, you're being pretty high and mighty at that point. Nice work. Got it. I'm at Gabrus on all social media. Check me out. I'm going on tour uh, to the Northeast in January and Texas in early February. Check me out there. Uh, tickets are available at headgum.com slash live. Bye, shitheads. That was a HeadGum Podcast.